Hello, everyone. Welcome to Smoke the Podcast, episode 13. Yep, episode 13. Um, how you doing? Doing pretty good today? Yeah, doing good today. Uh, that's good, because we have a pretty fun episode, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, I had an idea of kind of doing episodes that are dedicated to um, types of guns, you know, like a... a um, a gun system, a weapon system, a weapon I guess system, you can say. Yeah, yeah. Um, so today's going to be our first one. Okay, I'm um, excited. So, what are we smoking on today? Uh, today's cigar is a Romeo and Julieta Churchill. All right, and in the glass, uh, we have Angel's Envy Bourbon. Um, and our firearms topic today is the, the 1911. 1911. Um, so, can you let us know a little bit about... Uh, our selections today. Yeah, so normally, um, I'm sure if you've listened, if you're a past listener, a returning listener, uh, first off, we thank you for that. Um, but you also know that Theodore and I typically don't really uh, like select our cigar and whiskey together, like to try and pair them together. Um, we just kind of randomly grab a whiskey and a cigar and yep. let's let's do an episode. This one, we're going to be a little more... Um, a little more specific. We actually paired this cigar with this whiskey for a specific reason. We also paired our firearms topic, or talking about the 1911 platform, um, very specifically. And and the reason for that is for those of you out there um, who are history buffs, um, you'll know that we just uh, commemorated the 75th anniversary of D-Day, which was actually June 6th, uh, 1944, was actually D-Day, um, and then obviously June 6th, 2019, uh, 75th anniversary. Teddy, are you a history buff? <laughs> I'm not a history buff, but I am buff. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Just okay. kidding. I'm not buff, by the way. <laughs> so that was no, that was a good joke, though. No, I like that. Um, well, yeah, so this is definitely something that's a little more up my alley. It's also one of the reasons why I gravitate a little more towards... Um, like old school military guns, why I own a lot of World War II era bolt action rifles, things like that. Um, I just, I really, there's something about the history that I just love. It's awesome. Um, and so we're commemorating that because we just had the, the 75th anniversary of D-Day, but also um, that marks the entrance of the United States uh, deploying troops on the European um, front of World War II. Okay. Now, um, a little backstory before we get into our cigar description. Um, a lot of people think, um, based off of movies like Saving Private Ryan and, and anything that features the D-Day landings or, or Band of Brothers where they show the paratrooping um, paratroopers uh, landing on, on D-Day, as well a lot of people think oh my gosh this is the first time we got in into the war in world war ii but actually um we declared war um very shortly after i believe it was the next morning um after uh pearl, pearl harbor, harbor yeah. and um declared war on japan um we had uh troops deployed to the south pacific to fight um on the um asian front um on the Pacific front, um, and then we had troops eventually deployed to Africa and then Italy before even um, jumping into uh, the European front. The, it's just um, more famous. We see it a lot on TV and everything else. So uh, what, we're, what we're actually commemorating today is the European, uh, 75th anniversary of the European. Uh, yeah, and th that's good to clear that up because uh, <laughs> in popular culture, I mean, it, it seems like D-Day was kind of like the very... The entrance uh, to the United States, yeah, in yeah. World War Two, and a lot of people don't um, 
The, a lot of people credit that too, you know. Absolutely, and and most people, if you Just ask the popularity them, of it. they know that we had that we deployed troops on the Pacific Front. Almost everyone knows about it, obviously, mainly because of um, the end result, which was the atomic bomb dropping over yeah. in Japan. Um, so people know about it. What they don't know, oftentimes, is that we had troops that served in Africa and in and in Italy, and not to mention our allies had been fighting this war. Um, since 1939, um, France, France and Poland and um, and Great Britain and everything else. So yeah, because I was kind of surprised, um, being that I'm not a history buff, <laughs> to know. I mean, I knew that uh, Pearl Harbor uh, wasn't the end of 1941. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then when I I knew D-Day was June 6th, I just didn't know what year. What year? When, when I when uh, I found out it was 44. I was like, whoa, that, that was a, a big gap between uh, 41 and 44, you know? A absolutely. Um, yeah, so what's really cool is today um, the cigar, the whiskey, and the firearm topic all center around that, and, and we'll go ahead and go through that. So. All right, so let's get started with the cigar. Um, be while Ryan's talking about the cigar, I'll go ahead and uh, pour the whiskey up. Yes, please do. Our cigars have been lit for a Yes, bit. yes. Um, and the reason for that is because they are Romeo and Julieta Churchill cigars. So they're a, a lot bigger than, than the cigars we <laughs> typically smoke. Um, so we wanted to get a little ways into it. Um, because a little head start. Of, get a, uh, yeah, even a little head start. We're still further behind than where we would normally be on an episode. Um, so these uh, description, the description here... Um, I'm not sure where the description was pulled from, but we have the Romeo e Julieta Reserva Real Churchill was made using beautiful hand-selected Connecticut shade Ecuadorian wrapper, a Nicaraguan binder, and a blend of Dominican and Nicaraguan long fillers. Uh, this unique combination produces a rich and aromatic smoke that arouses the passions of even the most demanding cigar connoisseur. Um, so some unique facts about the cigar is obviously the profile is um, going to be smooth to medium, uh, or what I would like to say maybe more of a, a mild-bodied cigar that has the flavor of a medium. Um, <clears throat> a wrapper of a Ecuadorian Connecticut uh, shape is the, the Churchill, which is approximately 7 inches long and a ring gauge of about 50. Um, so it actually has a fairly similar ring gauge to the Robustos that we typically smoke, but the, it's got an additional inch and a half to two inches over the cigars that we usually smoke. So that's quite a bit more tobacco. Um, yeah. And so, so it it uh, it's, it takes longer to smoke them too because the draw on it it just seems to uh, just go slower for yeah. whatever reason. Um, and then the country of these ones, they're Dominican Republic. Um, and the filler is both Dominican and Nicaraguan. Um, the reason why we picked this cigar, A, is because it was um, a Churchill, and that's uh, there's a unique point about that, but this also was one of Winston Churchill, um, the Prime Minister of Great Britain during World War II. It was his go-to cigar. The reason why they are called a Churchill size, which again refers to the overall size of the cigar, was because Winston Churchill smoked a cigar from the moment he woke up to the moment he went to bed. Wow. And that was the length of cigar that he smoked. <laughs> and so they coined this size after Winston Churchill. That's why if you ever go into any cigar shop, you can pretty much find any um, series or um, type of cigar in a Churchill. Yeah, it's a very... Um common size that yeah. you see. I think when people think of cigars uh, like in the movies or in, in mm -hmm. TV, typically you see guys smoking Churchill sized cigars. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I always laugh because it's just, I mean, it takes so long to smoke these right. things, you know, yeah. I, I don't understand. Well, I mean, 
it, it just it's up to the individual, I guess. Uh, for me, um, I don't like to do a lot of things while smoking cigars. Yeah. So a Churchill sometimes is just way too long for me. You know, I can't yeah. sit here for two hours and and puff on a cigar and you know it just it takes a long time. Oh yeah, I've had I've had um, some really well wrapped, slow burning, um, consistent Churchills before. Mm-hmm. Um, Rocky Patel makes one that I really like. That took me close to two hours and forty-five minutes to smoke. Yes, and um, he's a he's a fast smoker. Too, and so. I'm a fast smoker, <laughs> but uh, you know, to be honest, with this with the extra um, amount of tobacco that's in this, I typically smoke a lot slower when I smoke Churchills. Um, and the reason for that is because as a as a, a little bit quicker of a smoker, I have a tendency to know like where exactly where my limit is with the robusto. Whereas with the Churchill, if I smoke them too fast, I tend to get a little lightheaded. Yeah, so. yeah, and then I, I could see how that. Uh, and that, that's a good tip for any of the any of the people uh, who are just getting into cigars. Well, we start with the shorter, smaller cigars. <laughs> Trust me, it, you're always going to think, "Man, I want more," but don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> Winston Churchill is impressive that he could smoke these from morning until night. Yeah, I mean, you it's, can desensitize I mean, yourself. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, once you develop that habit, I guess it's hard to break. All right, so um, what's in the glass today? It's, it's going to be uh, Angel's Envy bourbon. And uh, today's whiskey is actually brought to you by ePower LLC. Uh, ePower provides pressure washing services to the San Gabriel Valley and Inland Empire. Uh, call 866-EPOWER5 to schedule an appointment. Also follow them on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at ePower LLC. Um, thank you, ePower, for sponsoring. <laughs> yeah. uh, thank you to the guys at ePower for sponsoring our whiskey today. Um, so, um, Angels, Angels NV Bourbon, um, just give you some descriptions. Um, you know, uh, this is straight from the website, the Angels NV website. Oh, okay, perfect. Uh, which is kind of cool because sometimes websites... Uh, they don't give you that kind of stuff. They usually leave it up to the um, tasters and, you know, the... Yeah. The, the, the fine connoisseurs. Yeah, the connoisseurs. And... <laughs> um, so this is what they want their whiskey to taste like. Okay. So we'll see. We'll, we'll match it up. We'll give you a, um, uh, our honest opinion like we always do. Okay. So um, on the appearance, gold laced with reddish amber hues, nearly copper in tone. Uh, we are recording this outside, as many of you guys know, because we're smoking a cigar. So... It's kind of dark out here. It's kind of hard to see that. Um, so well, I'll just uh, <laughs> take their word for it. Yeah, yeah. On the nose, you'll detect notes of subtle vanilla, raisins, maple syrup, and toasted nuts. Um, well, I get some vanilla, some raisins. I was going to say vanilla and like, uh, I was almost going to say like grapes, like a whiny type. Uh, yeah, not, not too much uh, toasted nuts yeah. uh, for me. Um, on the palate, vanilla, ripe fruit, maple syrup, toast, and bitter chocolate. Okay. And on the finish, it's clean and lingering sweetness with a hint of Madeira uh, that slowly fades. Um, so, cheers. Cheers. Let's go ahead and give this a taste. Ooh. Oh, that's good. I like that. Yeah, that's really good. That's very good. There was initial like an initial bite right mm-hmm. after the finish, but um or right after the initial yeah, it, yeah, yeah. You first taste it. Yeah, and then but then it, it quickly went away. That's kinda uncommon. Um usually that bite lasts or you don't get a bite at all. Uh-huh. It's yeah, that a, is kinda weird. Kinda got a little bit of both going on there. Um get another taste. Um Yeah, I mean on the palate. I don't know. Like I said, when when you read these uh, these these tasting notes, um, I don't know if they kind of get in your head. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I I feel like I can taste some vanilla. 
a little bit of that maple syrup. Um, I can smell it a little bit more now that I've tasted it, the maple syrup. Um, a little bitter chocolate. That, that, all, that all makes sense. Yeah. Um, I think for me, I would say, um, if, had I not read the description, I would say uh, it's definitely sweet. Um, with a little bit of, like I said, that bite right there, right before the finish begins. There's like a little bite. And, uh -huh. But yeah, I don't know that I would have been able to pick out those, <laughs> those specific bitter chocolate and ripe fruit. Uh, so some unique facts. Uh, finished, uh, these, this whiskey's finished in port wine barrels, uh, which... Probably where, okay. <laughs> Probably I did not that know that. That's, that's crazy. 43.3% uh, alcohol by volume, making it 86.6 proof. That's a weird... Uh... Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> that's kind of exact. Yeah. Um, approximately 40 to $50 is what I was seeing it for, uh, for a 750 milliliter. And the reason why this was selected is because it does have a little bit of a tie to World War II. Okay. Um, so the American Elevator Company... Uh, the original building that's now home to the Angel's Envy Distillery uh, produced Bailey Bridges uh, for, oh, yeah. for okay. use in the European theater. Um, these mobile bridging systems proved invaluable to the Allied forces uh, advance after D-Day, um, allowing swift passage across the rivers of Europe following the demolition of most of the existing bridges on the path to Germany. Yeah. Um, and that's actually on the uh, Angels Envy website too. Oh, that's awesome! So yeah. Um, for for those listeners that don't know about <clears throat> Bailey Bridges or why they were even used, just in short, um, as Germany as as we after we landed on the beaches, we began to push up through France and uh, push in towards Germany. Obviously, uh -huh. moving our forces, and as the Germans would be pushed back and have to retreat or move back and displace, they would blow up all of the, the footbridges and, and um, uh, roads going over any rivers and streams. And so in order to get jeeps, tanks, supplies, anything across these rivers, they were having to build um, bridges. And obviously those can take forever. So these Bailey bridges were like these fold out kind of bridges that um, either tanks or these large vehicles could carry in and, and basically deploy them across um, the river. And then that now, now you have a a bridge and you can get all your supplies across it's actually pretty cool yeah that is pretty cool um and then the reason why um we selected this over any other uh whiskey as well is because there weren't a whole lot of whiskeys american whiskeys being made during world war ii correct yeah a lot of the distilleries were actually commissioned by the government to make uh unrefined alcohol for yeah. uh fuel and explosives mm -hmm. and war efforts yeah, so. uh, like most, a lot of companies, um, you know, were manufacturing weapons and, you know, that's why you can, you see some of the, uh, like M1 Garands that were made by a, a typewriter company and stuff like that. Kentucky Harvester, I think. They, <laughs> yeah, or, something like well, that. Well, American Harvester, yeah. I think at that time. Um, but yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. So in fact, uh, when we were, when we were searching for a whiskey, all we kept finding is, well, there wasn't much whiskey. A, a lot of the U.S. servicemen at that time just drank rum. Yeah, um, a lot of rum. Yeah, because all of the, the major distilleries that have been around since the early 17 and 1800s were producing just mass quantities of uh, industrial alcohol. Mm -hmm. Yeah, pretty crazy. Yeah, that is pretty it's, I mean, it's awesome as a nation that we would band together like that, you know, so. Um, so... All right, let's move on to the uh, triggered firearms topic. Yeah. The, the 1911. 1911. Uh, the 1911 <sighs> is uh, one of my favorite looking guns. 
Yeah. yeah. I, I think they're just cool looking. It's iconic. It is iconic. I would say, okay. So I was thinking about this uh, when, we, when we chose the topic. I was thinking about it as a kid growing up, and it was probably the same for you as well. As a kid growing up, there were two guns, in my opinion, when you thought of a handgun, right? Not a revolver, but like a, a, a pistol or a, a semi-automatic yeah, semi handgun, right? Um, there were two guns that came to my mind as being iconic on both TV, video games, movies, whatever. And one that I thought of was the the Beretta uh, 9mm, the mm -hmm. M9. The M9 is and then I would say super the, iconic. The 1911. Is oh, yeah. the, uh, 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 more so than the Beretta, but you know. Mm -hmm. um, those are the two that came to mind. Now, I think a lot of people nowadays would probably say the Glock is becoming the most iconic handgun on Probably. On I would TV. probably agree with that. Um, um, yeah, it, it's... It's it's very 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 common to see Glocks on TV nowadays. But but when we were when we were kids though, it was yeah, the 1911. The 1911. Yeah. That. And even people that I, I think are not into guns um, will recognize the shape of the 1911, the the look of the 1911. Well, and so for those of you, we'll get to uh, the nicknames for the 1911. Um, but a lot of people would not have any idea what if you said, "Oh, I have a 1911," or "Oh, that's a 1911." They wouldn't know what you're talking about. But if you said that's a Colt 45, I guarantee you a lot more people will go, oh, yeah, I know exactly what gun you're oh, yeah. talking about. Yeah. 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 That is correct. So that's, that's kind of the common name for it, <laughs> layman's terms. <laughs> All right. So uh, you want to go over the specs of the 1911? Yeah, sure. So the 1911 or model 1911, M1911, is a semi-automatic handgun that is recoil operated. Um, it carries, uh, originally carried a seven round single stack box magazine. Um, and when it first came out, it had a blued finish. Um, but they're more commonly over the years were seen in blued or parkerized finishes. Um, they had a stainless steel match grade five inch barrel, um, and a grip, both a grip and manual safety plus a single action hammer. So it's not it's definitely not a double action pistol. You have to have the hammer back yes. manually in order to fire. Um, yeah, so that's pretty cool. The other cool thing about it is it was one of the first guns developed um, to fire uh, the 45 automatic Colt pistol round, which is also known as the 45 ACP. Mm -hmm. um, the 45 ACP is one of the, at the same most popular rounds. Yes. Uh, nowadays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say the 45 ACP and the 9mm are the two most popular rounds yeah. in for handguns nowadays. Um, so it was actually that that round, and here's the crazy part: that round was developed before the 1911 was developed, and the 1911 was developed specifically for the 45 ACP round. Um, and we'll get to that. But basically, the 45 automatic Colt pistol round was developed in 1905 um, at the request of United States Army Cavalry units. Um, at that time, they carried the 38. Um, it was the 38 Long Colt is actually. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it was a 38 Long Colt, which is what they had in their, their standard issue revolvers. And they used them during the Moro Rebellion in the Philippines. Um, there was some uprising there, and I didn't really get too into detail on that. But basically, these Moro warriors would do something similar to like a Japanese bonsai attack where they would just charge at the infantry and cavalry units. And they were having to, um, you know, they were using these old school bolt action rifles and lever action rifles. And when they'd run out of ammunition, they'd have to pull out their 38. 
and uh, and it just didn't have the stopping power to bring these guys down. In fact, they were rushing the lines, rushing the lines, rushing the lines. Um, and so when they when that uh, conflict ended, they basically came back and said, "We need a bullet that will stop these these guys from from overrunning our lines." Well, do you know why I carry a forty-five? I'm gonna I'm gonna wager a guess. Why? It's because. They don't make a 46. <laughs> well, actually, the reason why I carry a 45 is because I'm too lazy to shoot twice. Oh, <laughs> I like that. I like that. There we go. Well, yeah, and in, in reality, that, that was the, it's a joke, but in reality, that is truly the reason um, for it. Yeah, and um, from my understanding, um, I'm not a ballistic ex- ballistics expert, but um, you know, the 45 uh, ACP is a slower-moving round. Um, and it's just a super heavy hitter. Yeah. Um, it's weird. Uh, I have a, uh, a 40 caliber, uh, Glock pistol. Um, and it's just so much snappier than the, the 45 ACP. <laughs> um, and it could be because in my 1911 is a lot heavier. Right. Um, but it's just like a thudding. It, it just feels like so much right. it, like heavier, you know, yeah. just like a, a, such a heavy round, even though it doesn't have that snappy recoil um, right. like a 40 does. Well, and the nice thing about the, cause I mean, at that point, the only 45 round that was out widely at that time was the 45 long Colt, mm-hmm. um, which is a really big round. Um, and, and that round is great. The problem is, is it's, it's too slow of a round okay. um, in the revolvers. And then it was long, too. I mean, it's a big bullet. Yeah, and that's, and a, a, big that's like a cowboy too. round. Yeah, it's a cowboy round. And so they wanted something that would be a little more compact. And at that time, they were working on building machine guns and submachine guns and things like that. And so they thought, well, why not create something that you could, you could use in a, in a pistol? And that um, was pretty cool. So as they were developing the 45 ACP round, it was pretty crazy. They commissioned the U.S. Medical Corps uh, to test multiple calibers. And the way that they did it is kind of messed up. They tested it on um, live animals and uh, cadavers in 1904 and so it's kind of it's super brutal when i was reading through it i'm sitting there going like oh my goodness i can't believe that this is even a thing but basically they had uh, i can't remember all the rounds i know the nine millimeter was one of them um they had the uh some version of the 38 they had the 45 they had i think it was like about six or seven different rounds that they were testing and um they would bring in like live cows um and i think even some horses or mules and shoot them in different places, like the lungs, um, or in in the intestines, in the stomach, in the heart, in just in areas that they felt were vital, um, and would basically just sit there and see how long it took for them to like bleed out. Oof. It's just like yeah, that's not. Uh, I laugh because <laughs> it's just like so like outlandish to me. Like yeah, can, I mean, especially being a hunter and like wanting an ethical kill. It, that's just yeah. We we were born. Much, much, much later than 1904. Of course. And, you know, the civilization's changed a lot. And I'm glad that we've kind of moved past stuff like that. Well, and technology, in all honesty, yeah. having ballistics gel, and mm-hmm. they can make full-blown, you know, human-looking torsos that react the same way as the yeah. human body and everything else. Um, they didn't have that back then. And, I mean, the, the cadavers were all donated to science, um, and that was their purpose. So um, I still don't know how I feel about that either. Um, but yeah, that, that was very interesting. They did a few tests as well where they would, um, fire as many rounds as they could too, just to see how quickly, um, it would bring down some of these animals and things like that. And basically what they found was that the 45 ACP did the most consistent damage. Well, 
I, it, it, it's definitely a good round. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, I believe that it does the most consistent damage. Yeah. Um, I even think, um, I, th I think like modern, like stopping power, I think that's one of the top uh, ones, right? The, yeah. The 45 ACP. The, I know the 44 Magnum and the 357 are also up there with it, but those are, I don't know of very many, I don't know of any, uh, semi-automatic other than the desert eagle that fires the 44 magnum yeah and i don't know of any uh, i've only heard of one 1911 variant that she was 357 magnum yeah yeah um i forget the name of it but i know i know what one you're talking yeah. about yeah um so the the ballistics uh of the average uh 45 acp rounds 230 grain 15 gram full metal jacket bullet yeah um 850 feet per second uh, 400 <sighs> foot-pounds of energy, and the effective range uh, 25 to 50 yards. Okay, and that's on a silhouette. That's not on a yeah. bullseye target. Um, yeah, and, and I'm I'm sure that uh, I'm sure they could be pretty effective at further further out. Um, Actually, beyond 50 yards, they start to slow down too much. Oh, really? Yeah, and so Ooh. I mean, it's it's pretty weird. Uh, there was. <laughs> There was a gentleman online who had, had talked about, basically, he was, and I don't know a whole lot about physics or anything like that. It would be cool to talk to someone who's into ballistics or maybe a physicist and find out exactly how much those, that, uh, the foot-pounds of energy drops off the further out it goes. Uh -huh. um, but it's, it's kind of the same idea behind a shotgun, how oh, okay. after a certain distance, it starts slowing down enough to where it doesn't do a whole lot, which is why the effective range, sure, it reaches out a lot further than that, but uh -huh. um, the actual effective range to to make a shot that would wound or kill is typically um, limited to 50 yards and accurately about 20 to 25 yards, yeah. in all honesty. Um, yeah, is, I don't know. I, I, I've shot mine. I don't know if I've shot it past 25 yards. Um, it, it's pretty accurate, though. Yeah, <laughs> you know, once, yeah. Uh, when you're within the range, it's it's pretty good. Yeah, I shot a twelve by twelve uh, a tile ceramic uh -huh. tile at about I would say thirty five yards, uh -huh. and it was easy to to hit it. Um, at the same time, though, it it's hard to to me if you're on the move. These I mean, these guns were built for combat situations. Uh -huh. You're running, you're breathing heavy. You might not have you might not have the time to sit and line up your shot and and so a lot of the guys that train with these train for hours and hours and hours under multiple different conditions to get that accuracy which is why in reality for a normal everyday person your effective range would probably be more like 15 to 25 yards okay that gun. makes sense yeah yeah so all right yeah moving on yeah, so um, just a little history on it. Um, the gun was developed by John Browning. Which gun wasn't? No. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. I feel like he, he uh, definitely had his hand in, in a lot of different <laughs> guns, um, which is pretty cool. I mean, to, to be able to have left that big of a mark on, yeah, know, on history. Yeah, it's a legacy. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, basically the U.S. Army needed a 45 ACP semi-automatic handgun, which we kind of talked about. So here's the cool part is, I, like I said, they, uh, they developed that bullet, right? And then they developed the gun specifically for that bullet. So they commissioned Colt, Savage, and DWM, which I'm not even going to try and um, tell you what those um, letters stand for. Uh -huh. The acronym's like a very distinctly german name but i can tell you that they invented the luger um okay. they were all of them were commissioned to build 
a handgun that fired the 45 ACP. So apparently there were some variants of the Luger, which is a nine millimeter, um, that were chambered in a 45, which to me is crazy because that's such a thin framed, small, lightweight gun. Yeah. It's like weird. Um, only Colt was the only Colt made a model that passed all the tests. In fact, the Savage had about 35, uh, or 37, uh, issues with it that they, that they found during testing. Um, so it didn't even come close. So Colt, um, was the one that basically developed, uh, the 1911. Um, there was an early model that was built in the, I think it was 1900 and by John Browning. And he basically updated that model or made that model. So it would work with the 45. Okay. Um, yeah, so it was pretty crazy. Um, and then it was adopted by the U S army officially on March 29th, 1911. Yeah. Hence the name. (laughs) And I think that's pretty funny. The, um, Original name, model of 1911. Model of 1911. <laughs> oh, what kind of gun you carrying, man? The model of 1911. <laughs> um, then the, the uh, name got updated to model 1911 right. in 1917. Yep. And then the M1911 in 1920. Yes. Um, that and, would have been after World War One when it became the M1911. Okay. And yeah. then um, do you know how long it was in service um, by the military? Well, I, we do talk about that. Um, whenever you whenever you talk about that, it's one of those things where it's kind of like um, it's weird because <laughs> there's so many variants of the 1911 nowadays um, that we actually have had um, guys who served in the military, uh, specifically more special operatives, um, uh, Navy SEALs, things like that, um, that still carry them today. Um, okay. They carry variations of them. Standard issue wise, um, that ended in about nineteen nineteen eighty, I think. Okay. Some yeah. somewhere either somewhere between like nineteen seventy nine and nineteen eighty two, I think, is when um, Beretta took over as the standard issue. But yeah, it was crazy because then um, it, you know it was adopted by the Army in in nineteen eleven, and then adopted by the U.S. Navy and the Marine Corps in nineteen thirteen. Um, we didn't even have an Air Force until I believe it was after World War II. Um, so then obviously the Air Force adopted it when they became their own specific branch. Before that, they were Navy pilots and then the Army Air Corps. Um, yeah, um, and both of my grandfathers um, are familiar with the nineteen eleven. Yes, um, but. They, well, uh, uh, I know my, my grandfather that was in the Marine Corps always refers to it as the 45. Yep. That's it, just the 45. The 45, yeah. yeah. <laughs> in fact, I think that's, uh, Papa Teddy was the same way as is well. He? Yeah. I think he called it the Colt, the Colt 45. Um, he uh, is a little more into guns uh, than my, my Marine grandfather. Right. Um, so when uh, I told my Marine grandfather that I bought a 1911, uh, when he saw it, he goes, oh, 45. <laughs> it's like, yeah. yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know Papa Teddy knew what the 1911, yeah. the M1911, he knew exactly what we were talking about. Uh-huh. Um, but then he, I think when I handed it to him, he was like, oh, that's the Colt 45. Yeah, that's the you 45. Know? Yeah, that's the 45. Uh, I think he had a little more extensive use of it um, simply because um, at that time um, where he was on the ship, I know that, that he said, I, I believe they, in basic, they fired um, the M1 the M1 carbine, um, and then the 1911. I want to say they were able to fire uh, like one or two magazines out of the Thompson submachine gun <laughs> as well. Cool. Um, he was telling me about all the different guns, and he was like, and then once we got on the ship, it was literally, here's an M1 carbine that you post guard with, and then you also post a guard with a forty five as well. Yeah. yeah, so I know he carried it 
um, quite often, I believe. Or at least whenever he was on guard duty. Um, but yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy. So then in, uh, by, that, by 1913, it had been adopted by all major armed forces mm-hmm. of the U.S. Um, and it actually first saw combat in 1916 in the U.S. expedition against Pancho Villa in Mexico. So that was the first time it actually saw action, like being a standard issue sidearm. Um, it was utilized by the U.S. cavalry and infantry units at that time, um, which was pretty cool. So it got its first uh, little bit of field testing. Um, and then shortly after that, uh, we entered World War I. Um, and at that time, it was only being manufactured by Colt and then Springfield Armory, which here's a crazy note about Springfield Armory that I did not know until this week. Springfield Armory... Um, is different from today's Springfield Armory Incorporated. Early. Springfield Armory was the government-owned armory. Oh, okay. Yeah, we had an armory in Springfield that was owned by the U.S. government, and they manufactured most of our military weapons. So um, then I think it was in the 60s, late 60s, uh, I think it was 68, maybe 70s, um, when they basically decommissioned the Springfield Armory. Um, and then a, a couple private citizens who were into gun manufacturing uh, coined uh, the Springfield Armory Incorporated and have been making guns based off of the Springfield Armory original models, um, which is why if you buy anything from Springfield Armory that was previously a uh, military model, it's, it's more likely going to be as close to mil-spec as possible because they had all the original um, okay. plans for them. Wow, that, that's, uh, that's good to know. I, I didn't know that. I, yeah, it was pretty crazy. I was like, oh, I had no idea that that was the case. Um, it was weird, yeah, when I saw that yeah, it was government-owned. I was like, I didn't know Springfield Armory was government-owned. <laughs> and, then, and then I did my research, and I was like, oh, it's not. But it used to be. Um, but then, obviously, the high demand in World War I, um, obviously, they had to add companies, um, ended up churning out over 68,000 1911s. Um, and Remington, Savage, Winchester and North American Arms, which is actually in Quebec, um, were the biggest ones for um, that for manufacturing those. Um, so that was that was pretty crazy um, that they got so many other people now where they gave them the the plans and said, "Hey, we need you just to make as many of these as you can." So it's pretty okay. pretty crazy. So um, World War One was the first major combat usage. Mm-hmm. Um, and the battlefield testing led to the updates uh, to updates on the gun. Oh, okay. Um, so the M1911A1 in 1924, which is what we use today. Uh, shorter trigger and hammer spur, uh, longer grip uh, safety spur, uh, modified grips, ergonomic frame cuts, and wider front sights. Oh, okay. So that that must have been what was the me- like uh, said on the battle. Hey, we, we yeah. could utilize these things. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you know it's it's uh, it's crazy. You know, once it, once people start carrying it, you're like, okay, well, let, let me. Uh, <laughs> it would be better if if these things were added. I would assume that that the shorter hammer spur obviously is probably because they were catching the hammer on either on their holsters or on things as they were climbing around or on their belts or something. You know what I mean? Yeah, I could imagine. Um, and then the longer grip safety spur that makes sense too because it gives you a much. <laughs> A much uh, uh, better defense against that hammer bite. The 1911s are known for that that bad hammer bite. I don't have to worry about that with mine. Oh, uh, mine, mine either. <laughs> you know, but we'll we'll talk about that a little bit later. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So yeah, that all happened basically then um, between World War I and World War II, and they began developing newer frames. And then, like you said, the, the M1911A1, which it was now referred to, um, then became th the biggest sidearm of World War II. And when I say the biggest, I'm not just talking about in the U.S. Most of the Allied countries carried and asked for or produced the 1911s as well. Um, in fact, the M1911A1 saw 1.9 million units built. Okay. Um, <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Remington, <laughs> Colt, and Ithaca, who was popular for shotguns, uh -huh. Ithaca was popular, really popular for shotguns, were the three major companies that built the most of them. But there were some random companies in there, and you mentioned this with the M1 Garand. Uh, Singer, which is an American <laughs> typewriter company, was commissioned. I believe they built 500 of them. Um, but yeah, they were more. They were building more of the M1s, uh -huh. um, and then Union Switch and Signal, which made uh, like switchboards for train stations or something like that. It's <laughs> like weird how like you know obviously they must have had very similar machinery to where they could they could be you know yeah. given a work order and hey make us a hundred thousand of these or whatever it might be. I, you know I wonder uh, what, the, what the worth is of, of one of those uh, uh, one of those guns. You know, <laughs> worth a lot. They are. Um, I, I don't know offhand, um, w you know, what the actual worth is. It's kind of funny because some of them um, are worth quite a bit because they're rare. Um, but some of the ones that were not built by actual gun manufacturers uh, had, like, a lot of issues with them. <laughs> and so I don't know. Obviously, I know sometimes that diminishes value, too. Uh -huh. So it's it's kind of a catch-22 where you're getting something that's really rare, but it might not be as well built as one built by Springfield or Remington or Yeah, by or a Colt. company that yeah. actually makes guns. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and at that time, Springfield Armory stopped making them mainly because at, they were building most of the M1 Garands at that time. At, during that phase. I think they were building all of the uh, Browning automatic rifles, so the BARs as okay. well. Yeah, they were, they were um, definitely building more of the bigger, bigger guns at that time. Um, and then there were some other updates that happened specifically for the manufacturing of the World War II uh, era specific uh, uh, M1911A1s. Um, mainly that was the parkerized finish which we talked about um basically from world war ii on the parkerized finish became the standard before that they were blued finish okay um the problem with that is in in areas like uh the pacific where they had a lot of moisture and and in europe too where it was always damp and moist those blued guns um in the leather holsters would just rust like crazy and they had to be maintained yeah, I can imagine. um so that that um, parkerized finish allowed them to really kind of beat up on the guns a little bit without having to maintain them as well um, and then instead of the wood grips, uh, which they were known for having those custom either walnut or cocoa bolo wood grips, uh -huh. um, they switched to a plastic brown wood-like uh, grip <laughs> on there. And mainly that was also, too, because they were using a lot of wood to build the M1 Garand stocks, yeah. the M1 carbine stocks, and the Thompson submachine gun stocks as well. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny um, how when I, when I look at the 1911 now, I think that it's it's very hard to not, I shouldn't say hard to maintain it's just harder to maintain and thinking back then is they were probably just happy to have them because they yeah. were you know not revolvers <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know they, they they were the they were the industry standard you know they yeah. were the the top of the line right. at that point you know and now I look at uh, the guns that I own and I think well the 1911 is awesome because it's so much history and yeah. they're so pretty yeah um but it's a lot of work, you know. They, oh, yeah. they, it's way more work than to maintain my um, well, my Springfield XD. And to field strip those things are just like the worst. Yeah, like in comparison to <laughs> yes. the XD and the Glock. And yeah, the, some of the, the other XD ones. I can take apart in like 
five seconds. Yeah, and it's just like I'm sitting there going like, oh my goodness, man, there's so many like moving parts on this thing, mm-hmm. and um, and then everything's you know all all steel, and there's no, I feel like there's no give sometimes in them. They're they're very like um, tight, and you know, and I've handled quite a few different 1911s, and I always feel like, man, this thing. You know, it takes forever to take apart. But yeah, you're probably right. Those guys are like, man, I can fire seven rounds quickly and then change the magazine and have another seven rounds ready to go. Yeah. This is awesome. <laughs> and, and yours is um, is the mil spec tolerances, so it's 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 a lot easier than mine to take apart and clean and stuff. <laughs> I would argue that that's completely false, but okay. Um, so before we move on, let's let's uh, get back to the whiskey and cigar. Um, what are you thinking about the cigar? And actually. We're we're going through these cigar pretty quick. You know what it is for is, a Churchill is I think um, they're they're pretty mild for what they are. Yes. I was expecting a lot more uh, power behind them, and I, I agree. I'm I'm not really getting that from it, and, which I like. Mm-hmm. Uh, in reality, this is a really smooth cigar, but very flavorful. Yeah, um, I agree. I, I'm a, I'm really enjoying this cigar, um, and and typically with Churchills, I, I get to a point, and it could be because we're talking and yeah, you know, uh, having a good time out here. Uh, I get to a point where it's kind of like, well, uh, you know, this is kind of taking a long time. And, yeah. You know, I don't, I don't know how much more time I want to invest in this thing, but um, I actually have not got this feeling, that feeling at all with this one. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying it. Oh, yeah. They're um, good. Well, what about the whiskey? How, how are you doing on that one? Whiskey is delicious. It's getting um, way better to me. I thought it was awesome um, when I first had it, but as the ice is melting, um, that initial little bite that I got, completely gone now and it's just very smooth yeah, um, but still very, very flavorful though. yeah I'm, I'm i'm digging it also yeah um I, this is the first time i've tasted this uh angel's envy yeah i've never had it before um and yeah it, it's, it's really good um it, it's still a little more of like a medium uh price range yeah um and it's you could definitely taste it it's it's a uh, it's pretty good quality stuff yeah it's definitely a i would say if there was a mild medium or full-bodied whiskey it's definitely more of a medium-bodied whiskey too yeah. Um, definitely got a little more flavor flavor to it. Not as smooth as some of the other ones that we've had, but also not, not nearly as, as harsh as some of the ones that we've had out there. Yeah. Um, it's usually a balance of, of smoothness and flavor. Some, some of yeah. the whiskeys that are super smooth have zero, like zero flavor almost. Right, right. Um, this is a pretty good balance. Yeah, this one definitely, I feel like, has I'm, a little bit of both. I'm digging it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so... Uh, Basically, back to the yeah, back to the 1911. Um, so, you asked um, how long it was in service, and and we had talked about you know how it was carried, um, uh, basically as the number one sidearm during World War II, um, and then later on how it became a little bit more of a specialized uh, handgun. Um, but during World War II, it was carried by pretty much all of the U.S. and Allied forces, uh-huh. um, and it was carried typically by all commissioned officers. And then most non-commissioned officers. So those would be like your sergeants and your corporals and okay. things like that. Um, again, most, not all. Yeah. Um, they didn't always have uh, resources to issue one to everyone. Um, a lot of the non-essential, um, or sorry, not non-essential, um, well, yeah, non-essential support roles. So like uh, anyone who was in um, any kind of like uh, like drivers of Jeeps, things like that, they were all issued on most of the support roles um, were issued one. Um, and then the ones that are kind of like one-offs that are just general infantry that carried them would have been like medics, uh, tankers, pilots, um, and then Navy personnel. And then a lot of radio operators actually carried them, um, mainly because they would carry like either the M1 carbine or the M1A1 carbine with uh-huh. the fold-out stock. Um, and then some of them, um, 
carried so much extra gear that they just uh, would carry a, a 45 as well. Um, some of the heavy uh, uh, heavy weapons um, guys carried them, like uh, the machine gunners um, would carry them, and then um, mortarmen sometimes would, would be allowed to carry them as well. And it was really hit or miss, too. Uh, oftentimes, if uh, a company commander decided, like, hey, I want these guys carrying the 45s, then they would get requisitioned the 45s, whereas the next company, he might say, yeah, they don't need, yeah. they don't need one. Okay. Um, that being said, any person who could obtain one, in any uh, infantry or soldier uh, who could obtain one, uh, pretty much were allowed to carry a sidearm or any additional weapons. Uh, many of them bought them, like on leave in other places, or had their family members buy them from back home and send them over to them, uh -huh. um, which was pretty crazy. Um, or a lot of them scrounged them, um, whether they stole them from supply uh, yeah. <laughs> supply uh, drops or things like that, or uh, or uh, even pulled them off of uh, dead bodies and things like that. Um, if you if you could get your hands on one, you were allowed to carry it. Okay, a lot of guys even um, carried like revolvers from back home and things like that. It's definitely not uh, like it is today, where it's like you're issued this and you're only supposed to carry these items. Yeah, there's a like lot, that. lot, a lot different back then. Yeah, it was a lot more lenient, especially with limited resources. Absolutely, they're kind of just trying to get. Uh, whatever they could. Well, and the reason why they were so popular, though, and, and why a lot of guys carried them is because the 45 ACP was used in the Thompson submachine gun, uh -huh. and a so majority of officers um, and then platoon leaders, usually every platoon or squad had a Thompson submachine gun, so there was always 45 ACP ammo around. Yeah. Um, there oh, wasn't, yeah. That's, <laughs> that ammo was plentiful. Oh, yeah. There wasn't always, you know, 38 special or, uh -huh. or long colt or things like that around. So if you could get your hands on either a 45 revolver or a 45 um, uh, uh, 1911 or, or just anything that really that fired a 45, you were typically allowed to carry it. Um, 9mm was pretty popular, too. And then also Britain's special forces really loved the 1911. They often carried the Thompson as well. At some point, um, they switched over to the Sten gun, which fired a 9mm. So a lot of their guys ended up carrying, um, like, 9mm semi-automatics as well. Um, so, yeah. Uh, what about um, post-World War II? Um, so you said uh, that, it, what is it, about the 1980s is when they kind of yeah. went out of standard. So that would mean... That it was uh, used in like Korea, Cold War, Vietnam Wars. Yes, yeah. So those were still standard issue. Same people too that we talked about: officers, non-commissioned officers, um, support roles, medics, things like that, um, uh, pilots, and and tankers, things like that. Any anywhere where they might need a backup um, uh -huh. a weapon or or might not be able to get to their primary um, would typically carry them still. And then and the 1980s is replaced by the Beretta M9. Yes. Um, which yeah. I know people that have Berettas. They're pretty nice. <laughs> yeah, they're 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 definitely nice. Um, it's it's kind of funny because um, there are a lot of guys that were the old school of the old breed that were uh -huh. like, absolutely not. There's no way I'm carrying a nine millimeter. And then we've we've had this debate before: the 45 versus the nine millimeter, stopping power versus accuracy, um, and then being able to carry more rounds and stuff like that. A lot more rounds. So I yeah. M9 is what 18 18 rounds. The magazines. Yeah. Um, and, and for the most part, um, during that entire time from World War II until about the 1980s, the model, um, the A1 model of the 1911 pretty much remained the same. Like there okay. wasn't a whole lot of updates. Um, there, there weren't any uh, – that was the other thing too. There weren't very many integral uh, updates between World War I and World War II. Most of those things happened between World War II and 
um, the 1980s where they found, okay. you know, maybe stronger steel and different things where they could basically change out the guts of the 1911 a little bit and update them with um, just higher quality pieces. But for the most part, the um, kind of the blueprint stayed the same. Um, which is pretty cool. And they withstood a ton of usage. And in fact, they were cheaper to rebuild, use 1911s than they were to manufacture. Um, uh, new ones? Yeah, new ones. It's pretty crazy because a lot of the ones that were used in the Korean War um, and Vietnam War were literally ones that were issued <laughs> in World War II and carried <laughs> in World War II and things like that. And so um, a lot of them, they call them like parts guns where they all just, whatever parts started failing on them, they pull them out and put put in new parts or put in... Um, use parts that were still in good condition and things like that. So Yeah, it's funny the the 1911 with the the old school guys is is still the go-to gun and um it's funny with uh with our our grandfathers or my grandfathers and our grandfather uh the 1911 was the, like almost the only semi-automatic uh, pistol that was okay, you know. Yeah, like that's cool. Yeah. You could carry that <laughs> you one. You carry that one. Yeah, uh, where the Glock's like, ah, oh, it's made out of plastic, or you know, like, what are you gonna do with that? <laughs> like, uh, yeah, is it shoot a BB or what? You know. It, yeah. I yeah I know we had talked about it when we were talking about um, Papa Teddy and stuff. How he always preferred a revolver. Um, but I remember I had showed him, I think it was my Springfield XD, and I know you had showed him your Glock and a few of the other ones, and he was just like, oh, cool, that's a handgun, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but I remember bringing over the 1911, and he was like, oh, yeah, Colt 45, like, that's cool. You can yeah. carry that one. That one's yeah. okay. Yeah, um, that, that's uh, that's the one, you know, that, that holds that sentimental value. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, you see a lot of the guys, it's, it's funny where you go to shooting ranges or to gun stores, and you see that old school guy and that's that's the one thing i look at is like okay is he's carrying a 1911 watch and yeah. you see it on this oh it's a 1911 1911 absolutely <laughs> it's tried and true you know my favorite <laughs> is when you get the old guy who's got you know he pulls out his range bag and he's got a 44 magnum a 357 maybe even an old school single action 45 long colt and you're like oh man revolver city over here <laughs> then he pulls out the 1911 and it's like oh, okay oh, yeah. i could get behind that oh yeah not that i have anything against revolvers <laughs> but it is kind of funny um, yeah because i i love my 44 and but it's just it's funny yeah it's funny because you know being the younger generation we don't uh, discriminate against the newer models you know it's not because because to, to us i mean they've always been around you know we've yeah. always We've always lived in a world with uh, Glocks, Glocks and, and, and uh, Springfield XDs. And, and even it's so funny, too, because even the older guys don't typically prefer the Beretta. Um, we're getting to that, that age now where the older guys now were the ones who carried the Berettas. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, uh, and so now you're getting a lot of older guys who are, oh, yeah, I love the Beretta and this and that. But uh, the 1911, man, it's just a classic classic gun yeah you know it's funny that uh, this is not a podcast about the beretta but the beretta it it it, it gets a lot of, of flack i think um i don't know if it's because it's the short period of time the 1911 was was part of the u.s military for such a long time yeah and uh, the beretta had its little stint um but i've always liked it you yeah. know I've, I've i've always felt that it shoots good of you know they're they're a little heavy or whatever yeah. but for a nine millimeter, yeah. Though, for a, a nine millimeter, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, you know, I've always liked them. But it just to me, I, I think it's a pretty gun. But it, it, to me, it's just the the nineteen eleven, just the the looks, everything about it. I just uh, I like. Uh, uh, to me, it sounds weird because I know the Glocks have that very angled grip. Yeah, and, and same with the Springfields too. Not as bad, but uh -huh. um, the XDs. Sorry, I mean. Um, but to me, there's something about holding a 1911 that feels more ergonomic than those ergonomic uh, grips on the polymer 
guns. I don't know what it is. If it's just maybe it's just all in my head. It might be all in my head, but yeah. you pick up a 1911 and it's like that feels like it needs to be shot. Like that's a, that's that's <laughs> it just, a, it feels so hardy. Yeah, it does, and um, and it's crazy too because you think a 45 man that thing packs such a punch, but in reality, I feel like I can almost shoot that thing better than some of the nine millimeters I've handled too. Yeah, um, it's just it's an easy gun to shoot in it, my opinion. It, it really is. Yeah. Um, yeah. So and and that's. Probably why some law enforcement agencies adopted it. Uh, custom M1911A1s. Yep. And then they developed for a short period the A2s, which uh-huh. were like a really customized um, version. Um, and it, you can debate day and night about the difference between yeah. the A1 and the A2. But in reality, they're all custom at that point. So Springfield Armory uh, Custom Professional 1911 was used by FBI, SWAT, and HRT. And... Um, that's the hostage rescue team, for those of you that don't know. And the Kimber Custom 1911 used by LAPD and local SWAT teams. Yeah, for, for Southern California. Yeah. I know there's a lot of other SWAT teams that also prefer the Kimber Custom. Um, I just know for a long time, uh, LAPD, that that was like their go-to was the Kimber Custom 1911s. Uh-huh. Um, I know a lot of them carry like the, um, what is it, the Nighthawk um, Custom. Nighthawk Customs. Um, those are pretty popular as well. Um, and then, like like I had said, uh, <laughs> there were 1911s carried during Desert Storm and Iraqi Freedom as recently as, I think, 2018 was um, one of the most recent times they had actually seen a general carrying uh, 1911 as, as his preferred sidearm, um, which is pretty crazy. But in, in reality, they're, they're mainly just used by operators, specialized units. Um, a lot of the, like... Um, guys that do any kind of like uh, mercenary work uh, where they're just guns for hire in some of those rough uh, Middle Eastern countries, uh-huh. a lot of them choose to carry the 1911. Yeah, you know, and we've been talking mostly like the, the M1911 A1 is pretty specific uh, type, but the 1911 has evolved um, a lot. Yeah, <laughs> you know? absolutely. There's so many companies that make uh, the 1911 variations of the 1911. Now you find 1911s in 9mm and other calibers. Yeah. Um, if I were to ask you, sorry not to interject, okay, but I, I'm just curious, off the top of your head, who would be some of the manufacturers that come to mind just like that when I say 1911? Oh, uh, Kimber. Okay. Um, Nighthawk Custom, which you said. Yeah. Um, Jesse James Firearms makes them. Okay. Um, I mean, obviously Colt. Oh, Springfield Armory. Springfield Armory, of course. <laughs> uh, SIG uh, makes a pretty cool 1911 as well. Yeah, SIG does. Yeah, um, yeah. It, I mean, almost every. Uh, and then I know of the company. budget ones, um, Rock, Rock Armor, Island, or Rock Island Armory. Yeah. Um, and then there's another one um, that's that's on the lower end, and I can't think of the name right now. I'll have to look it up. Yeah, but, there's there's uh, there's a couple of those. But I know Rock Island's the big popular like lower end one. Yeah, and then uh, Les Bauer. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and those are the super. That's the the, the, <laughs> the other end of the yeah. the spectrum. Nighthawk Custom, Les Bauer. Those are super expensive. Yeah. Um, 1911s. But yeah, you're right. They've made them. So the standard 1911 has a five inch barrel. Almost uh-huh. like, like if you think of the 1911, it's it's with the it's a full size with the nine, uh, five inch barrel. Um, and they're all single stack. They even made some double stack, uh, versions of it with a wider, like grip to the base of it. There's been some that have come out with the, I don't know if you've seen them, the double barreled 1911s. Mm-hmm. They're two side by side. And yeah. I've seen, uh, I've seen a, just like a YouTube video. Yeah. Of there's some guy shooting one of those. I mean, they're interesting. I don't know that I'd ever own one other than for fun, but, um, yeah. And then they make a lot of concealed carry ones now that have three and four inch barrels, yeah. which are pretty cool. Yeah. And like I said, different calibers, right. um, you know, to me, 
you know, the 1911 is, is a 45. Yeah. I mean, uh, but, you know, some people, they, they like that, that platform, I guess. So yeah. They, they'll uh, take it a 9mm. Yeah, and the, I think the 9mm, I know they make the 5-inch barrel models, but I think typically those are in 4- and 3-inch. Uh-huh. Um, and I've even seen 22 caliber Yeah, well, a lot of guys cool. will buy the conversion <laughs> kits for theirs, too, so that way they can just shoot. Uh, 22 out of it because it's so much cheaper just to mm-hmm. shoot 22. Um, you can buy conversion kits for them that are pretty cool, and they make some really like high end 22 1911s now as well that are like really neat. Yeah. Um, and then I don't know if um, how familiar you are with them, but uh, Springfield Armory also makes a series um, that's a nine millimeter series um, that is the uh, they call it the 911 series. Oh, okay. And it's basically yeah. these three, I think three inch or three and a half inch. Um, little short um, and framed, and I know they make it in a nine, but I've seen nine millimeter, or sorry, I've seen the 1911 in a 38 before. Um, I've seen it in the 380 before. Um, there's a bunch of weird calibers out there. There's so many different versions of it; mm-hmm. it's ridiculous. But yeah. Um, so uh, Ryan put together a little uh, a little thing because I have a TRP. <laughs> um, and I like to joke around about how the TRP is so much better. Do you know what TRP spec. stands for? Uh, tactical response pistol. Okay, I was going to say if you didn't know that, <laughs> that'd be pretty embarrassing. But um, you know, I I, I like uh, the stainless steel one, and you know, it's just my personal preference. Um, so we'll let Ryan read off what Springfield says the difference between the the mil spec and the uh, TRP. Um, but go ahead. Yeah, go ahead and go ahead and uh... I just like to give a forward here. <laughs> I have never seen anyone be issued a stainless steel 1911. <laughs> just saying. I, well, look, I understand. I, I but I like mine, man. I just like the way yeah, it looks. Yeah, if you want to get spotted from like a light <laughs> flashing off that bright silver from a mile away. Um, it's matte. It's not like shiny silver. I guarantee you if I shine a light on yours and mine at a distance, yours would flare up. It might. But mine's so accurate that I can, you know, doesn't matter what what distance you are oh okay i'll <laughs> be able to shoot the light right at your hand <laughs> yeah because the 45 acp can do that again <clears throat> so mil spec versus high end really this shouldn't say high end it should say middle end middle yeah. of the road <laughs> yeah the trp is is not a high end uh um, 1911 by any means but it's high end for like what the average person would carry yeah like someone who's not in in law enforcement someone who's not in the military um or has a need to carry something that yeah or just doesn't have i mean because a lot of like like the nighthawk customs and the stuff we were talking about kimbers they're really expensive and they're really expensive because like, of the aesthetics and the things yeah. that are and a lot of them are all hand hand yeah. pressed and handmade and yeah. hand machined and everything else so um, you're also paying for that as well, but typically those range anywhere between like, I would say like 25 on the low, low, yeah. low end, all the way up to I've seen them as high as like five, six thousand yeah, dollars. Average, I would say, is about four grand for yeah. a custom 1911. Um, so, anyways, the mil spec. Uh, first, let's talk about the trigger on the mil spec versus the TRP. So, the mil spec has the short um, mil spec trigger <laughs> <laughs> uh, with a five to seven pound trigger pull. Um, that comes out of the box. Uh, TRP has the longer trigger on it um, with a out-of-the-box uh, 4.5 to 5-pound trigger pull. And it has three little cool little holes on the trigger that look really nice. 
Okay, you can get it with holes. You can get it <laughs> filled in. That's like aesthetic. There, I don't know that there, that serves any purpose whatsoever. Other than it if does. we were in hand-to-hand -hand combat, I could shove a pen through there, and then you couldn't pull the trigger on your stupid gun. It does serve a purpose that it looks nice, man. That's a purpose. That's, that's not a productive purpose. Okay, the sights. Mil-spec comes with mil-spec combat <laughs> fixed three-dot sights. Uh, and the TRP comes with adjustable tritium three dot, so it glows in the dark. Glows in the dark, yeah. Um, and the mil spec, it might be a little misleading. I mean, because they're not really fixed. Yeah. You could use a sight pusher, any sight tools to adjust them. You can actually put tritium combat sights on there. Um, you could potentially put adjustable sights on them as well. So, but w would that be mil spec? No, no. Which oh. is why I haven't done that to mine, and I have no need to. Okay. Just so, saying. But but what you're saying is. That you can do that, but then it wouldn't be mil spec anymore. No, and I don't okay. need it. What I'm saying is that there's so. I'm trying to give the idea that there's so <laughs> many variations, man. I'm I'm more concerned for the people out there, bro. Come on, our listeners. Gosh, all you think about is yourself. Frame. <laughs> so this one, they both are made of forged steel, um, either stainless steel or carbon steel, whether it's parkerized. Um, you can get parkerized finish. Some companies make the blued finish. I don't know why you would ever want that on, on a 1911. <laughs> I, some guys like the aesthetic of it. That's cool. But if you're going to carry it in a leather holster, that just sounds like a bad day. Um, the mil spec has a standard frame. Um, standard mil spec frame? <laughs> standard mil spec frame. And the TRP um, has extra hand press fitting. Um, so it's not fully custom. There's still a lot of parts on the TRP that are machined out, which yeah. is the difference between the TRP and like a full custom gun. Mm -hmm. um, but it does have extra hand press fitting, which is nice. Um, and a lot of guys with the mil spec will still go get them hand press. Now, I don't know if that necessarily defeats the mil spec because a lot of the guys in the military had theirs hand pressed to fit them and tighten them and things like that. For those of you who haven't caught on, the 1911 does require quite a bit of maintenance too. So... Um, we were joking about how it's a pain in the butt now, but back then it was probably okay. Um, but yeah, after you shoot so many rounds through it, you do typically want to take them to a gunsmith and have yeah. them um, press fit everything and, and just tune them up and stuff. Um, and then you got that weird uh, grip stipling, stippling, whatever you want to yeah. call it. Yeah, it's pretty aggressive stippling. Yeah, yours, I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's cool. For me, I'd probably want something a little less uh, like pointy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, but that's just my personal preference. I know a lot of guys like really prefer that. Yeah, it's very aggressive. And when when I first held it, I, I, the one thing I noticed is like this thing will is not going to like slip out of your hands. It's it's yeah. it's there. I feel like you could really get a good grip on it. Um, with that said, I don't think it's necessary. I mean, yeah, uh, mil spec is just fine. Yeah, I because on the back it has. Um, has some grooves on it and things like that too. So, I mean, there's, there's, uh, yeah, it's just yours is a lot more aggressive and custom. Um, yeah. and guys will do all kinds of really cool custom, um, custom grips on them and everything else too. Yeah. And it's got the flared mag well too. Oh yeah. And that as well. Um, um which is kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then for the barrel, the mil spec has <laughs> the mil spec <laughs> five inch stainless steel match grade barrel and the trp has what the mil spec five inch stainless steel match grade barrel same barrel what no way wow that's like one of the most important parts of the firearm and it's exactly the same huh wow okay well i'm just saying okay the size the mil spec weighs in at about 39 ounces um that's unloaded. Uh, five 
8.5 inches tall and 8.6 inches long. The TRP weighs in at a hefty 45 ounces at 5.7 <laughs> inches tall and 8.6 inches long. Yeah, so harder to conceal, heavier to conceal, burns through your belts faster. Man, that just seems like a pain to carry all that extra weight <laughs> and length around, or height, I should say. Um, here's, here's where it really uh, boils down to the difference, is the grouping um, when fired. Now, both guns were fired from 25 yards, or at 25 yards from a rest, from a resting position. So um, I don't know if they were sandbagged or what, the, just the website on Springfield Armory just says uh, 25 yards from rest position, from a rest. Okay. So the mil spec had five inch grouping at 25 yards, whereas the TRP had um, three inch grouping at 25 yards, both from a rest. Um, okay. So I'll take the extra weight with the accuracy. Well, I would hope that you're not shooting at a three inch wide person. I mean, <laughs> at the end of the day, if you're literally just trying to, I mean, this isn't a gun that you're like shooting long range for accuracy. I mean, you're, it's up close, personal. It's a combat pistol. You know, I'm just saying. Okay. If you can't hit a silhouette with either of them, you probably shouldn't be <laughs> shouldn't be using one. Um, no, it, it's definitely impressive. I know, obviously, too, the ammo that you use will definitely um, cause that to fluctuate quite a bit. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's definitely a um, a huge plus for the TRP. And that also comes from the extra hand press fitting. It makes it a little tighter. There's less of a issue with. Um, you know, like extra movement and recoil yeah. and the slide racking, things like that. Um, a few other notes that I'm sure you can bring up before I talk about price um, would be like uh, the safety. You Oh, yeah, yours the ambidextrous Ambidextrous, safety. okay. Um, yours doesn't have the rail on it, though, right? No, mine does not have the rail on it. Um, but most TRPs do come with a rail to attach yeah. a lighter laser, things like that. Yeah, the, there's, there's a... Uh, I, I, I don't know if it's... A different model or whatever, but um, there's there's one one model that has uh, the rail underneath, which is significantly more expensive too. And I think this M MSRP may be that. No, it's not. It's, it's the, not. It's, it's the, the same lowest one. one. Yeah. Okay. Um, the higher one was actually closer to uh, two. Because I didn't pay nearly that much. No, I know you didn't, <laughs> but I also didn't pay nearly the, yeah, the MSRP like, on that. Yeah, right. that's that's the lowest MSRP listed for. Um, the mil spec and the lowest MSRP listed for the TRP. Before I read off the MSRPs, would you like to explain anything else about the TRP that I may have forgotten? Uh, the TRP is much better looking. I disagree 100%. In a Parkerized finish, possibly, okay? But the hammer has got that weird little, like, hole in it on the back and that weird, like, uh -huh. I, don't, I just like the old school. Dude, you know me. I love military guns. Really... I'm going to say this on air, and Teddy's going to probably hold this over my head for forever. The TRP is a beautiful gun. It's a cool gun. It is a beautiful gun. It's, an, it's a nice gun. However, to me, at the end of the day, I think a 45 effective range for both of us is probably, again, that 15 to 20 to 25 yards effective range for both of us. In okay. A, right? Because we're not, we're not competition shooters. We're not, we're not out there shooting every day. You know, we're not like avid marksmen. I would say that we're, we're definitely probably better than average. Um, but I don't know that, that the price range for me makes all that much difference in performance on, on either of them. Um, the other thing that I'd like to say is that there's something cool and iconic about carrying the same exact gun that 
thousands upon thousands of U.S. servicemen carried throughout World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam. They wouldn't have issued them to those guys if they didn't work and they didn't perform. They're battle-tested. They won two world wars. So why change it? If it's inherently perfect, why try and perfect it more? <laughs> because if the technology was out, they would have put that on there. They would have, they would have uh, been carrying TRPs in uh, World War II. Yeah, the, there's a lot of the things on there that they could have added to it with the technology at the time. They could have put adjustable sights on there. They could have put... Teridium? Uh, maybe not that, but they could have put the grips... Dippling or whatever you call it, they could have put the. Uh, they didn't have the manpower to, they, to they do could all the extra hand, hand fitting. Well, then, so obviously it worked if they're issuing it. Yeah, it worked, but it could have worked better. I doubt that. I think, I think they wouldn't have issued it if it didn't perform and do its job. So, um, you know, I don't want people to think that I think that you know. I think that I have like the greatest uh, 1911 because I don't. It, it really is. <laughs> really, we're talking about like two really not yeah. as nice 1911s. There's probably guys listening to this going like, "What are they talking yeah. about, dude? I have a custom at home. Like this thing's way better. They're talking um, about crappy guns." Basically, might as well shoot a high point. What it comes down to is the TRP just has a few modifications that you can do to a regular 1911. It's uh, or I should say, in regular, I should say, mil spec 1911. Um, it is basically a mil spec 1911 with upgrades. Yeah. Um, where if you get a custom 1911, they're handmade, hand fitted. Yeah, absolutely. And if if you, I would uh, just tell anybody like go to a gun shop, and especially if you don't live in California where there's a handgun roster, you go to a gun shop and you look at their 1911s, and um, look at a high end one, and y you could just you could see how how tight the tolerances on those things are. They're, Absolutely. They're so tight, in fact, that um, if you get any jams or anything like that, they won't even, uh, like, look at your gun unless you've had, like, you know, a thousand, two thousand rounds put through them because that's how long it takes for right. uh, all the tolerances to get perfect. Right. You know? Yeah. Uh, where what they, they say, like, the TRP, like, maybe 500... Uh, rounds you want to put through it uh, just to get the, the you know to get slide moving and everything. Uh, yeah, with the mil spec they told me a uh, hundred and fifty to I think three hundred rounds or two hundred rounds or something like that. Yeah, so you know what it comes down to that the nineteen eleven uh, it's a beautiful gun, but it takes a little bit of maintenance. Yeah, maintenance yeah. and care. No, and and like I said, all in all, the TRP is an awesome gun. The mil spec's an awesome gun. Yeah, you'd be lucky to own both of one or the other or both. Mm -hmm. They're um, in, in all honesty, at some point I, I'd love to get a custom. Um, for me, my thought process is I'll get the 1911 in the mil spec right now because it's awesome. It's old school. It's the history that I want. It's got, you know, it's got that old school look to it. And then at some point I'm definitely going to splurge and get a custom. Yeah. The, the, you know. And what's kind of cool about, um, I like to, I like to make a little bit of a comparison with the 1911s. Um, it's like, like getting a nice pair of boots. If you get like a real high-end pair of boots, you kind of have to break them in yep. before they get super comfortable. Yeah. Um, you know, if you get like a little lower end, they're a little maybe a little more comfortable out of the box. Um, but like the, with high-quality yeah. materials, you have to work them to you know the shape of your foot. Absolutely. Um, and it's the same thing with uh, high-quality 1911. 
it, it, to me, it's got like that old school, you got to work for it kind of thing. Yeah, it's almost like a guitar too, where yeah. you start developing a feel for it for your specific 1911 and things like that. One of the tips that I was given by a few different people that own 1911s and shoot them regularly was that, you know, you when you go in to pick out your 1911, ask the guy behind the counter, bring me um, every single one of the model that you're interested in. Uh -huh. Bring me every single one that you have. I want to rack the slide. I want to be able to pull back the hammer. I want to see how they all feel because they all feel different. Um, and yeah, so that's one of those things where if you have that option, definitely do it. Yeah, I was explained um, at the gun store. Uh, one of the guys told me if you got a box of Glock parts, you can build a Glock and it would work like a Glock. Yeah. Um, and that's not true for a 1911. You know, 1911s have to be um handmade pretty much and kind of tuned yeah kind of tuned up and yeah you know the right the right barrel has to go with the right uh, slide and everything yeah. to kind of yeah to get a good one yeah i think it's probably similar to um it's kind of the same thing with ARs. You have the lower end ARs that, mm -hmm. you know, you can kind of piece them all together. Will it function all that great? You know, you hear those lower end ARs not feeding properly or having issues with different things. It's the same way with the 1911. You put in the higher end parts, you fit everything together so it's more similar. Um, or you buy like parts or parts that were even machined together and you're getting a much better fit. Yeah. Um, and it's the same thing. Anyways. So before we forget, that, that's, uh, let's, let's hit them with the price. Uh, that's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. Anyways, we, let's go back to the price. The mil spec, and, and again, we went through Springfield Armory because you literally can go on their website and compare side by side. So yeah. if you want to go online and compare what we're saying and fact check us, you can go <laughs> on to Springfield Armory's website and compare them side by side. Uh, the price that is listed for the mil spec, the MSRP, and this is in the Parkerized finish, which is the cheaper finish than the stainless, um, it is $780 is the MSRP. The TRP MSRP is uh, $1,650. So it's about double the price for yeah. the TRP, um, which is why, in my opinion, I paid for the mil-spec, not only because I'm a big mil-spec aficionado of old-school, historic-looking guns, um, but also I thought, man, double the price. It's not mil-spec. It doesn't look like the old-school gun, um, and it still shoots a 45, which the effective range to me and the grouping just didn't... For me, like I said, it just didn't make sense. Yeah. But. Well, I mean, you decide. Yeah, and to each their own. Yeah. yeah, I got a good deal on mine, so. No, uh, you, yeah, you did. You got a killer deal, and so did I, too, because. Um, uh, so, yeah. what I'll do is. Um, Thank goodness for Christmas deals. If you follow us on Facebook, Instagram, uh, Smoke the Podcast, at Smoke the Podcast, I'll, uh, I'll put up a picture of both of them, and you guys can decide which one's the prettier one. Yeah, I mean, you can. <laughs> well, I have a feeling that you, you think you might lose this one. No, I'm just thinking in my mind, like, why would you even subject yourself to such criticism? <laughs> because I, I like it. Okay, whatever. Um, anyways, uh, in closing, you got any, any cool nicknames? What, what are the nicknames for the, the 1911? So these are the common nicknames for the 1911. Every, everyone should nickname their... If you buy a 1911, you need to give it a nickname. Yes. Okay. But these were the common ones. I have ones. a nickname for mine, too. I do, too. Okay. Um, these were the common nicknames during World War II and then beyond. Um, my favorite, and I don't know why I think this is so funny, um, they found that they were extremely effective against Japanese bonsai attacks. And so it gathered, uh, amongst all of the soldiers, it gathered... Uh, and was rewarded with the nickname of the Man Stopper because supposedly <laughs> one round would stop a, uh, a bonsai infantry soldier well, charging at an enemy line. I could imagine. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, one of the other nicknames, uh, and this was just because uh, it's it, w- the way it was produced back then, they called it Old Slab Sides because they felt <laughs> like it was just machined out and just kind of, I, I mean, it's pretty flat on both sides. Uh-huh. You know, there's not a whole lot of rounded areas to it other than the top of the barrel. So um, that's where it got the name Old Slab Sides. And then we already talked about it. Most commonly, it's called the Colt 45. The Colt 45 or just the 45. The 45, yeah. yeah. Or the a lot of guys just called it the Colt too. Which can be confused for guys that are actually into shooting because if you talk about like a Colt 45, a lot of people don't know if you're talking about the 1911 or the Colt Peacemaker because those were also okay. called Colt 45s yeah. as well. To me, I've always just called them the Peacemaker, but yeah. a lot of guys just call them the Colt 45. Um, do you want to reveal your nickname for yours? No, I like yours first. I okay. think yours has a little kind of a little, <laughs> yeah, I like yours. Well, the nickname that I gave to. Uh, my Springfield TRP 1911 is St. Peter. And the reason it's called St. Peter is because it holds the keys to heaven. There you go. I like it. Because <laughs> if you're on the receiving end, you're meeting St. Peter. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Mine's called the Judge. Wow. And the reason why I call mine the Judge <clears throat> is because there's always a sentence for death. <laughs> 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 oh man uh. so let's uh, circle back to this uh, cigar and whiskey and we'll uh, close it out for everybody yeah absolutely um so i'm oof, uh a little over well, it looks like i'm a lot over halfway through the cigar yeah you're and you're in the probably the last end of the second third i would guess yeah and man this is uh this is a good one yeah and it's burned a lot quicker uh than i thought um, I, I really expected to be puffing on this thing for a couple hours, and I probably got about another uh, half an hour on this thing at least. Um, which uh, I would, you know, for these this size, I would expect to be, you know, two and a half hour cigars. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm really enjoying this thing. It's it's very mild, um, not giving me a head change at all. Um, not you know. Not making me uh, feel, the, give me that nicotine sickness yeah. or anything like that. No, me me either. I kind of let mine lapse for a little bit there only because I noticed um, I'm not used to smoking something this long. And I was getting like, uh, I felt like my throat was getting super raspy. I should have uh, had some water out here. Yeah. I'll but I felt s- like it was getting a little hard to talk there. I'll say the construction on this thing is really good. Yes. Um, it's burning really straight. Um, you know, that I've, I've been ashing mine not to drop so it doesn't drop on me. Um, but yeah, it, it, the ash has been holding on really well. I would say based off of what I'm looking at in the ashtray, our ashes are averaging about three quarters of an inch to an inch. Yeah. And I, um, I, I think it would hell on longer had I not. Oh, ashed absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I just, uh, it's amazing to me how, how quickly, uh, my voice goes downhill after <laughs> smoking so much more than I'm used to. And you know, it's, uh, um, we've been talking quite a bit and this thing hasn't gone out. It's been smoking yeah smoking pretty good yeah it's it's crazy you can almost set it down and kind of it's one of those ones where you can literally set it down for a minute or two between puffs um and that that's it, that really it goes to the the construction quality of it you know, um it's, it's pretty cool so uh with the bourbon um i might have over iced <laughs> so you know I, I think i put a little too much ice in mine yeah um, so it's a little too watery now um i i had a, a pro tip about you know uh Putting only three ice cubes, uh, you know who you know who you are. That gave me that pro tip, and I didn't listen to you today. So yeah, <laughs> I probably should have on that one because it's it's a little too watery. But you know, w- when it had that perfect mix, it was really 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 good. I could sense that mine was getting there, so I I polished it off before it got <laughs> to that point because I'm like, yeah, I don't want it to to get to that. 
Um, no, really good. I honestly think I could probably do that one neat too. Um, yeah. The bite wasn't bad enough to where I felt like, oh man, like that's harsh. Like yeah, that. maybe I some... always bring up that wild turkey 101, <laughs> but it, that, I mean like that's not anything that I would ever want to drink neat. Maybe some whiskey stones or whatever uh, yeah. in here to keep it cold. I, we definitely need to look into getting those spheres. And maybe to give uh, a little bit of a shout out to uh, our cousin that was on the podcast, Anthony, um, the 1911 um, nowadays is definitely the most Gucci'd out uh, gun <laughs> because so, you, you, they're so expensive, some of them, and they're so like uh, over the top um, that I think the 1911 is, is the one that you can Gucci out the most, as he would say. That, again, you're using that as a verb, right? <laughs> yeah. Gucci'd out. Gucci'd out, yeah. I don't understand that. I, I think I'm using it correctly. And, and he'll, Gucci's he, like a clothing company, right? Um, I believe so. Yeah, I don't know. I only wear Bass Pro Shop, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he, he can let me know if I used it correctly. Yeah, it's super Gucci'd. <laughs> yeah. Gucci'd with a D, I think. And he was making fun of me for saying a mil-spec 45 round was my go-to <laughs> round. Yes, uh, yeah, when he asked that question... Uh, there was a hint of truth, like, well, not a hint. Yeah. I, I, to me, I would rather have the 45, but, like, in my mind, I'm thinking... Well, yeah, you could put the 45 ACP in like any of the polymer guns, and you could put it in any custom 1911 you want. And the custom 1911s are Gucci'd out. They're I've, I've, super Gucci. Yeah, if you want to, if you want to look up, just I can't just, believe I'm using that word. Just look up high end 1911. Do a Google search, and man, you can see some Gucci'd out guns. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. But <laughs> anyway, thank you guys uh, yeah. for listening. Uh, follow us on Facebook at Smoke the Podcast, uh, on Instagram at Smoke the Podcast. Uh, we appreciate your support. And uh, we'd also like to shout out one last time to ePower LLC. Thank you again for providing the whiskey tonight. It was delicious. All right. Have a good night.